0: That's drummer and NEA Jazz Master Roy Haynes playing Green Chimneys. And this is Artworks, the weekly podcast produced by the National Endowment for the Arts. I'm Josephine Reed. We're kicking off the 4th of July weekend with a jazzy double feature. Later on in the show, trumpeter, composer, and band leader, NEA Jazz Master Gerald Wilson. But first, Roy Haynes defines the word style in every sense. From his distinctive drumming to his snappy clothes, he is first among equals. Haynes is among the most recorded drummers in jazz, and in a career lasting more than 60 years, he's played in a wide range of styles, ranging from swing and bebop to jazz fusion and avant-garde jazz. He's been equally successful as a leader and as a sideman, playing with a who's who in the jazz world. Artists like Charlie Parker, Lester Young, Thelonious Monk, Miles Davis, Danilo Perez, and Christian McBride, to name only a few. Roy Haynes is a notoriously tough interview, not for the faint-hearted. But he's also very insightful about his music and had a surprising amount of patience when he sat down with me at the studios at Jazz at Lincoln Center. Here's an excerpt of our talk. You got your start with... Lewis Russell. Mm-hmm. How did that happen?
1: It happened by what I was doing and the way I was doing what I was doing. Uh, you know, people talked about that because Lewis Russell didn't know anything about Roy Haynes to, until people told him, you know. And then I was living in Boston at the time. I got a special delivery letter from New York from Lewis Russell. He had never heard me, but he heard about me. And I guess. It's probably the people that told him about me, you know, for him to uh, stretch out and try to reach me, you know, which is the way it happened.
0: One of the first gigs you played with him was at the Savoy. The first gig was at the Savoy. It was the very first. Yes. What was that like? What was the, what was Savoy? Like? What was was the Savoy like
1: then? The Savoy, <laughs> you can't hardly describe it in anything that you know about. Yeah. you got to have a great imagination <laughs> because... A lot of people would come to the Savoy Ballroom, and they probably wouldn't even dance. There's so much excitement going on. First of all, they had two bandstands. They usually had a big band on one bandstand, and a small band, a combo, and the next band stand. Back in uh, probably late 30s, early 40s, they would have the Battle of the Bands. So the two bands, there, they'd be battling. I used to hear a lot about it when I was young in Boston, because... I think certain nights they would broadcast anyhow from the Savoy Ballroom in Harlem to uh, different stations, so I had heard about it. And when I first played there with Louis Russell's band, I don't think the bands were really battling then because it'd be a big band on one side, 12, 13, 14 piece, and a small combo on the other side, you know, the other part of the bandstand, which was like twin bandstands together. But that was really an exciting period. Because not only the people came to dance, some people would just stand in front of the bandstand and listen. They call it the home of the happy feet, you know, because a lot of people could dance like they were professional in those days. You know, '40s was when I uh, first come to New York with the band, my first job. Like I was saying, was at the Savoy Ballroom in Harlem. You know, so it was a very exciting period.
0: As you said, Louis Russell, of course, had a big band.
1: Yeah, we had I don't know. 12 or 13-piece orchestra, you know, three brass, maybe uh, three trumpets, three trombones, uh, three uh, saxophones, three or four saxophones, and a guitar, bass, and drums, and a great vocalist.
0: Who was the vocalist?
1: Lee Richardson, when I was with the band, he made hit records. One of his big records was The Very Thought of You. He had this voice, the very thought of you, and I forget to do. You know, and all the young girls would be screaming. You know, we play theaters like the Earl Theater in Philadelphia, and uh, we do five shows a day during that period.
0: Five shows a day. Oh, yes.
1: And if they had a lot of people waiting in lines after each show, they would have to add another show to it. So, you know, you got a chance to make extra money then. You know, the more shows you did, the more money you made. And a lot of that wasn't always planned in advance. Sometimes it would just happen when it would happen, you know, the last minute people would be lined up to come in the theater waiting for people to leave so they could come in and catch the show.
0: How important do you think that experience was for you as a performer, especially playing in a big band?
1: Well, it was my first big band experience, for one thing, which was something I wanted to do anyhow because I used to listen to a lot of the big bands, like the Basie Band, when he had Papa Joe Jones playing drums, and also when he left, they had other younger drummers, you know, that I would go and catch, you know, with the band. In fact, I did get a chance to play with that band a couple of times when I was much younger also. But I was never a steady drummer with the band. I just filled
0: in, you know, for a few nights. And Papa Joe Jones is one of the drummers that you listen to.
1: Oh, definitely. He was he was the main one. In fact, you know, a lot of drummers my age, you know, during that time, we, in fact: Drummers of any age usually were checking out Papa Joe Jones.
0: What was it about his sound? Not
1: only his sound, his feeling, the way he would do different things. It's hard to explain because I'm talking about early '40s. You know, you know. I'm just beginning to be a professional drummer, and I'm listening to certain things that other drummers didn't do, and the way he would do what he did. The feeling came from here. It wasn't nobody just just practice. You know, this was a natural drummer, which is what they told me I was. I was just born natural drummer, so I could sort of relate to uh, Papa Joe.
0: You saw the birth of bebop. Did it grab you right away when you first heard it? Was it like an explosion in your mind when you well, first heard
1: it? I don't know if I would look at it as an explosion, but it was something new that was happening. the The tunes, like the compositions... And the way the different artists were playing, certain artists, you know, the things that they were doing musically, yeah, it was something new. So it, it did grab me, yeah. I jumped right on it,
0: yeah. And you played with Charlie Parker.
1: Yes, Charlie Parker hired me, I forget what year it was, 1949, I'm thinking, yeah. And I was with Lester Young during that period. And I know once there was a gig, a concert in, I think, Baltimore, Maryland, where there were two bands. Charlie Parker's band I was with Lester Young then and Charlie Parker was there with his band and his drummer at that time was Max Roach so Max Roach's drums were set up on the the bandstand and I said I'm going to sit my drums right beside his you know Max was very popular then and I was a younger guy younger guy a couple of years younger than him just beginning to get popular also so I said yes I'm going to set my drums right up next to his and I did and and not even realizing that I would end up playing with Charlie Parker. I was with Lester Young then. And that was a a great time of my life with the music and a great uh, experience to be playing with Lester Young opposite Charlie Parker.
0: I would think it would be.
1: Oh, yes. That was a very exciting period.
0: I seem to remember people saying Lester Young spoke in a very particular language he was very funny but you kind of had to understand where he was coming from to get what he was saying is that did you find that to be the case <laughs>
1: yeah that's that's very true uh, Lester Young he was one of the most um, how can I describe him so people understand uh, original people that I've ever met not only the way he dressed the way he talked, he would talk, if he had just met you, he would talk his language to you. So some of the things you probably wouldn't understand what he was saying. But that's, that's the way he was. He was a you know, very original person all the way, the way he played, the way he dressed, and the way he talked. And it was not just a put on thing, it was, that's the way this man was.
0: Were you sorry to leave that band and go with Charlie Parker in some ways?
1: I was happy. Because uh, I wasn't just moving on to move on. I was going to be playing with Charlie Parker, one of the <laughs> great persons. You know, I went from Charlie Parker to Sarah Vaughn. Right. You know, it was great playing with Charlie Parker. He a great genius. Sarah Vaughn was a genius also. They did a recording together that also inspired me. Charlie Parker was on a recording with Sarah Vaughn. Sarah Vaughn, I mean, she, could just, she knew the music, too. She knew the the chords, the changes that she wanted the the musicians, especially the keyboard player, to play for her. You know, we have a lot of people that are great singers, you know, but they, they don't always know the music or about what they're doing. They just do it naturally only, and they're gifted to do it that way. But Savon, you know, she could pick up the music and read the music as well a new composition that she never heard before one of the differences of just playing with somebody who can sing and you know, not a great musician but Saravon was a great musician as well
0: you were with thelonius monk at the five spot with a great live recording i think it was fift-
1: late 50s or 60s yeah. yeah
0: how what was it like playing with monk <laughs>
1: It was great. I enjoyed it. I enjoyed every moment. Monk wasn't just a, an ordinary artist. You know, he, he had a lot of feeling, a lot of imagination, and it was great. It was great playing with him. Only thing that was kind of strange, sometimes you had to wait hours before he would show up, so we wouldn't play till he arrived. So sometimes the club would be crowded with people waiting for Monk to come, you know. But uh, that was a long time ago. That was in the late 50s. That was yesterday. That was yesterday.
0: (laughs) Jazz has a reputation, rightly or wrongly, of being not a young person's music anymore. I'm often in audiences, and I always look around to try to see how old people are in the audiences, and they tend to be older audiences. And opening jazz up to younger people seems to me to be something that is a very significant thing to do, and that is something that you do your audiences, the demographics tend to be more skewed. I'm not saying they're all young at, right, by right. any means, but they do tend to be more skewed. You're absolutely right. That's something,
1: huh? I Something think for so. me to think about, too. You know, I think about, you know, because sometimes I don't notice it right away. I've heard people say years ago, I'm not talking about the last two years, but even before that, you draw a really young audience. People years ago would say that about me, you know, when I was much younger than I am, you know. So I guess that has to do with the, the music or the, the recordings or something they heard or read about. I don't analyze things. I don't try to. Some, a lot of the things that happen, I, I, I just keep on keeping on and don't try to uh, figure them out. That's what I do on the bandstand, too, a lot of times. If I try to really figure out the music, boom, 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 I try to do it by what I feel mm-hmm. rather than talk about it. Even if I have somebody new in my band, I don't sit down and tell them what I expect them to do or what I would like them to do. Usually, they probably feel something or heard from somewhere. We don't talk about it much. And it works. It has been working. I'm going to leave it alone. (laughs) That's
0: drummer. And NEA Jazz Master Roy Haynes. This is Artworks. I'm Josephine Reed. <music> Gerald Wilson is a storyteller as well as a jazz legend. And as a composer and band leader for over 60 years, he has quite a few tales up his sleeve. Gerald Wilson's use of multiple harmonies is a hallmark of his big bands. His band was one of the greats in jazz, leaning heavily on the blues, but integrating other styles as well. His arrangements have influenced many musicians, including multi-instrumentalist Eric Dolphy, who even dedicated a song to him. Wilson's career took off in 1939 when he joined the Jimmy Lunsford Orchestra where he honed his skills as a musician, composer, and arranger. In addition to being a band leader and composer, Wilson has written arrangements for many other prominent artists, including Duke Ellington, Sarah Vaughan, Dizzy Gillespie, Ella Fitzgerald, Benny Carter, and so many more. For many years, he was a popular teacher at various California universities, spending over 22 years at UCLA, where he taught jazz history, Wilson's also a great admirer of classical composers, and his recent CD, Legacy, contained an homage to Igor Stravinsky. When I spoke with Gerald Wilson at Jazz at Lincoln Center, I asked him to tell me about Variations on a Theme by Igor Stravinsky.
2: For many years, I've been an admirer of classical music. My sister was a classical pianist, so I've heard a lot of classical music and these are some of the special people that I liked, like, like uh, Igor Stravinsky, and I saw him in person myself. Really? Uh, yeah, amazing. I saw him at the Hollywood Bowl uh, back in the 50s, and he was there with his son, Sulima, who was the featured pianist as he conducted that night at the Bowl and, uh, and left an impression on me. Uh, when you make a variation, you don't t- actually do the whole piece for instance, the Stravinsky piece, I only use six notes out of the whole Firebird ballet.
0: Only six notes. and yet Only you...
2: six notes, but you, you use the six notes, which is the essence of the piece, and then we change the form of it from the, what it was to a jazz piece by changing the form.
0: had one of the great careers in music.
2: My musical career started with my mother, who taught school in, in, in the little town we lived at in It was called Shelby, and she was a music teacher, and she started me out on, at the age of four, as she did my sister and my brother. My sister was a classical pianist owner, and my brother, he also plays the piano, He plays some classics, but he can also play jazz. And he graduated from Tuskegee.
0: With Jimmy Lunsford.
2: Yeah. This story starts from Chicago. I went to Chicago at the World's Fair in 1934, and I was amazed by Chicago because having lived in the South all my life, in Chicago, when I got on the streetcar, I didn't have to go to the back of the streetcar. And I said, well, gee, this is this is nice. It's a good feeling. So when I got back home from the World's Fair, I told my mother, I said, mother, I wish you would send me to Chicago to go to school because I like what's going on in Chicago. So she said, well, listen, I, I, I don't think I can send you to Chicago. And she says, I can send you to Detroit. So I said, well, as long as, as, long as it's in the north. So she said that she sent me to Detroit. Well, that morning when I went to school the first day in Detroit, it was not segregated school. It was uh, all kinds of people in the school. And uh, and that was in all the schools of Detroit. There were no segregated schools in Detroit. All were open to black students as well. There was no segregation in any of the schools, uh, universities and colleges in Detroit, Michigan. So I said, well, now this is really a wonderful place because it gives you another feeling if you've come from a place like Shelby, Mississippi.
0: Early in your career, you played with Jimmy Lunsford. Tell me about it.
2: Jimmy Lunsford, first of all, Jimmy Lunsford was a fine musician. He played the uh, flute, he played the uh, saxophone, he could play the
0: guitar, and he could also write music. With Jimmy Lunsford, you began composing. You began arranging. One of the songs you did for him was Yard Dog Mazurka. Yes, Yard
2: Dog Mazurka was a number that I I composed and arranged. What happened was fooling around with the piano one day, I had learned this chord progression that had never been used by any band in the world. And it starts right out from the beginning, but it happened just by chance. There was a young man by the name of Roger Sigill, a young white fellow there that wrote music for Jimmy Lunsford. So I was over to his home in New York, right here in New York, and he was writing music for the Lunsford band at that time. And so I was at his home that one evening, and I said, hey, Roger, listen to my introduction I'm making on, on Stomping at the Savoy. And I, I played it on the piano for it. And he says, gee, that's really a great chord progression you got that. But he says, you know what you ought to do, Gerald? He says, you should repeat that eight bars and then write yourself a bridge, which is another eight bars, and then repeat the eight. That's why they call it the A-A-B-A form. So I I thought about it. And he he told me, he said, you should do that and then you would have a composition of your own. So the next day when I saw Roger, I said, Roger, that's a great idea you told me. And I said, I'm going to give you half of the number. I did. I gave him half of that number. That's why you would see on it Gerald Wilson and
0: Roger Segura. And, that, and that's the honest thing I did. Well, Gerald, after you left Jimmy Lunsford, you went to L.A. Why L.A.? What was going on there in the music scene?
2: Well, you know... When I went to L.A., actually, the very first time with Jimmy Lunsford, we had just left Chicago. In the wintertime, it's very bad. Snow and ice and everything. So when I got to to Los Angeles with the Jimmy Lunsford Band, I said, well, this is the place for me because I like the weather out here. So later on, I did. I moved to uh, Los Angeles, and I've been living there for 60 years now. But I knew that uh, Los Angeles would be big in television, which was not in yet. There was, not no, there was no television at that time. And I said, the movies are here. That's a good, a good place to live because you, to work in the movies and write music for movies and things like that, this is a good place to be. And that's why I did. And I was lucky because I actually wrote for movies. I wrote for television. I was Red Fox music director on the ABC uh, variety show he had. So it's turned out to be a nice thing for me living there. However, I I consider New York as a home. I lived here. I lived here when I was doing real good and I lived here when I was doing real bad.
0: New York is a lot more fun when you're doing good.
2: (laughs) Yeah, but you, you find a way to exist in New York. I consider myself with seven homes in the United States. I lived here, I lived in Chicago, I lived in Memphis. I went three years of, uh, of high school in Memphis, Tennessee.
0: I was making notes when you talked about the cities you regarded as home. Memphis, Detroit, L.A., yes. Chicago, New York, of yes. course Mississippi. We're talking about real jazz towns. Yes.
2: Well, you know, Mississippi, of course, uh, I was right in the middle of jazz, you know. I remember when, uh, when the bands would come through from New Orleans. My home is, uh, is 250 miles from New Orleans. It's a direct line, straight line, from New Orleans to Chicago. When King Oliver left, he left in 1918, and he went to Chicago. And he went there, and he taught the musicians there, and I'm talking about black musicians now. He taught them, because the black musicians who had been born there, they didn't know how to really play jazz, because there were no recordings, there was no radio in the early days, so they didn't have anything to listen to, unless you had been to New Orleans. So I got a chance to see many of those guys coming up
0: with the bands,
2: the traveling, going to Chicago.
0: Detroit is also a big music town, a big jazz town.
2: Absolutely, absolutely. And that would be on the count of, like, Gene Goldkett. I don't know if you know who Gene Goldkett is. Gene Goldkett was a white band leader. Gene Goldkett owned the Greystone Ballroom. Okay, blacks couldn't go to the Greystone Ballroom, but every Monday night was black night at the Greystone Ballroom. And every Monday night, it was a band like Duke Ellington, Jimmy Lunsford, Earl Hines, all of the big black bands, Chick Webb, and all of those people.
0: And talk about a long time.
2: You taught for over 40 years. Yes, uh, I got into jazz in the college, you know. I taught jazz at UCLA for 20 years, 22 years. I taught the history of jazz because I knew the history. And that's why I did it. And uh, the kids liked my class. I had 480 students in my class. And they made us cap it at that because the first year I did, I had over 500 students, and there would be some sitting in the aisles. So the department said, "You can't have that many Gerald because we we can't have them sitting in the aisles." And so they capped it at 480, and it was full every year. And you had to pay to be in that class. So it was a big thing for the school. So I stayed there all that
0: time. Gerald, what? What was it that you wanted to teach these students about jazz?
2: Well, you know, I was so much in love myself with jazz that I knew from the time I was about four or five years old because of my brother that I was going to be a jazz musician because my brother, he could play jazz on the piano and he could play some classic, And he would talk to me when he would come home from school. He graduated from Tuskegee. So he's really the guy that really pushed me on into
0: it. And let me ask you finally, you said that Duke Ellington is your favorite musician. Tell me why.
2: First of all, let's say, tell you about Duke Ellington. Duke Ellington, as a pianist, he's one of the greatest pianists in the world of jazz. His style, they have never been able to copy him, the way he plays it. The way he brings in things, and he's a great composer, as we all know. That's the thing about Duke Ellington. He was my—he's my favorite man. I had met him. How did I meet him? While I was in school, uh, there were a bunch of us kids that went to Cass Tech, whenever they'd come to play in Detroit at the at the Graystone Ballroom, we'd go up and try to meet him. I went up, and I said, "Mr. Ellington, I'm." want to meet you. I love your music, and I'm so so very happy to see you and hear you. And he was a nice man. He says, well, thank you, young man. Keep studying your music and doing things. I followed him in the Apollo Theater in New York City. And then Duke called me in 1947 to orchestrate two of his compositions for him. And this would be a nice little story for you. I didn't hear from Duke Ellington again for nine years. Nine years. He called me up again at six in the morning and said, Gerald, I need some help. And I said, okay, Duke, what is it? So he says, I I got two numbers to orchestrate. I said, okay, what are they, Duke? He said, one is called Smile, that's written by Charlie Chaplin. The other one's called is if I Give My Heart to You. It was another pop tune. So I said, Duke, when do you need these numbers? He said, this afternoon, 2 o'clock, Capitol Records. <laughs> and so so that morning he called, her, I just called my wife. She was busy with her mother in Glendale. I said, come on, we got to get this record ready for Duke Ellington by 2 o'clock this afternoon. She came on over. She copied, as I score each page, she's coughing it. She's copying what I'm doing. And and at 2 o'clock, we're there. And I will say to myself, they are two of the best orchestrations I ever made in my life.
0: That was NEA Jazzmaster Gerald Wilson. You've been listening to Artworks, produced at the National Endowment for the Arts. Next week, author Julie Atsuka, whose novel, When the Emperor Was Divine, is a current Big Read selection. To find out how art works in communities across the country, keep checking the Artworks blog. Or follow us at NEA Arts on Twitter. For the National Endowment for the Arts, I'm Josephine Reed. Thanks for listening.